Welcome to the Secret Life of Cookies, where we try to solve the world's problems through the miracle of carbohydrates, one recipe at a time, with host Marissa Rothkoff and her dog, Bosco. Today on the podcast, we'll be discussing something people find nearly as scary as the idea of Donald Trump and Ron DeSantis' running mates in 2024. Something more daunting than trying to turn Wyoming into a blue state. Start your deep breathing exercises, folks, because this week is pie crust week, and we have no better person on the planet than Molly Katzen, world famous cookbook author. Yes, the Moosewood Cookbook and the 12 that have followed since. She is here to spread the word that pie crust isn't just easy to do, it can be fun and bring joy. She has also some very inspiring words about choosing joy over anger, which after the week of watching trials across America and shenanigans in DC, Paul Gosar really reposted his video after being censured. Who does that? Anyway, deep breaths. I am going to choose joy and pie crust. And after you've spent some time with Molly Katzen, as I had the pleasure of doing, I have no doubt you will choose joy too. A quick word about the pie crust recipe. While we talk and chat our way through making pie crust during the podcast, in real life, with a food processor, it will take you no more than five minutes. And that includes wrapping it up and putting it in the fridge to rest. The complete recipe with explicit instructions, can be found in my newsletter, marissarothkopf.substack.com, where you'll also find a treasure trove of Thanksgiving recipes appearing throughout the week. You can also find a link to it on Twitter. I am here in my kitchen a week before Thanksgiving with Molly Katzen, the empress of butter. No, the empress of everything, the empress of the broccoli forest. It is a pleasure to have you here. Thank you so much for joining us today. I've been, I've been waiting for you to invite me for a little while. Obviously, I knew as you from your cookbooks, you know, I mean, you and everybody else, uh, you, your cookbooks precede you. And it's not just the Moosewood cookbook and the 12 or 11 that followed since, but you said that millennials also recognize you now too. Because when I... I tested pretend soup on a group of kids who were probably four years old. They're adults now. They're out in the world. They have their own kids. Um, and they still remember. They, we, we had a session that was so much fun when that book came out. We did a Good Morning America, sent their food correspondent, who at the time was Julia Child, to my <laughs> It was the best experience of my life. She pulled up in a limo. I mean, she, she was being driven. She didn't drive the limo. And <laughs> she was so humble and um, so unpretentious and so interested in everyone. And the everyone she was interested in here at that time was a group of four, four-year-olds, five four-year-olds who were going to make her breakfast here at my house. Oh, um, my God. Pretend soup, the blueberry pancakes from pretend soup. And there were all these little kids then. And now they're these big adults now. And they still talk about it. Because it was so formative and, and she knew all of their names by the end of the session. And they made her these absolutely hideous blueberry pancakes that were <laughs> burnt on one side and raw on the other. And she ate every one of them. And bless her heart, the woman was the real deal. That makes me want to burst into tears. 
That is amazing. Good tears, you know. Um, I have to find that. I wonder if I can find that clip from Good Morning America. I've got it. I've got it. You do? Okay, I think I, I need a little moment with that. I need a little oh, when you <laughs> I need a little moment with that because it's been a bit of a week in the news. But uh, before we get onto that, I want to let people knowing at home that we're here to hold your hand, especially because you're gonna sh- walk us through something that people are so afraid of, like more afraid of than like Chucky, the evil clown <laughs> doll. People are afraid of making pie crust. They are afraid of two things. In my experience of teaching cooking, the two most terrifying things are vinaigrette and pie crust. Cake from scratch is another one. Cake from scratch. I don't know what it is people have uh, such fear about putting dry ingredients together because then they go out and buy a cake mix. And all it is is the dry ingredients got mixed (laughs) by someone else. (laughs) Anyway, uh, the pie crust is something that people have a barrier for. And that's why the commercial pre-rolled frozen pie crust is such a big business. I know, please. I I can barely say those words. I'm no snob, for real. Like there's Velveeta in my refrigerator right over there because I grew up with it and it's just just a thing, you know? And if you want to eat a yodel, God bless you. If you want to doctor a cake mix, fine. But I really don't want you to use pie crust that comes from the supermarket. I really want people to make it themselves. It's so much better. I want to say something about pie crust. Well, I'm going to say a lot of things about pie crust because that's why I'm here. <laughs> but, but I had a pie crust kind of epiphany just a couple of weeks ago before I knew I'd be talking with you about it. So the timing was great. Um, I have a, a French friend. She's just so elegant. And, you know, she also, she's funny because she's from France. She actually was born in France in 1941. During oh. the Nazi occupation, she's got stories upon stories. Oh she moved to New York City when she was about 12. And her English is like, she talks like this, you know, like she's <laughs> like <laughs> totally off the streets of Queens. <laughs> but um, she bursts into the most beautiful French and she has this incredible habit of inviting her friends over for lunch. Who invites people over for lunch ever anymore? Love it. And so a couple of weeks ago, I was over there for lunch and she made a tart, a leek tart leek and mm. uh, gruyere and uh, that's how she says it it's the most sat anybody out there the most satisfying french word to say in the world Ooh, isn't it the it's world. got its own like yummy quality, quality so so but the crust was gorgeous the mm. crust was i mean let's take the word showstopper literally i stopped and i didn't even get to the leeks and gruyere yet i just <laughs> And I'm like stoned from just the first look and the first bite because it was so perfect. And it made me realize and once again, which, you know, every few years I have pie crust epiphanies. This one was <laughs> we need to start, stop thinking of pie crust as just a delivery system for the filling, but it's a thing unto itself. And we want our pie crusts to be stellar, just a brief show-stopping moment before we continue into the rest of the pie. I I agree with you. And the point about that that is really important is that it's possible. I think people like, oh, it's going to be like leather. Because people have so many, as my father would call them, gixes. I think it's a word he made up. But people are gixes. They just can't do it. And I want to know where those fears came from. Do we have an unrealistic notion of like, grandma and grandma's pies 
you know, there's some sort of homey idea that every grandmother out there knew how to make perfect pie crust and you'll never make it like her. Like some conspiracy amongst grandmother. My grandmother's pie crust wasn't that great. (laughs) (laughs) But she made homemade strudel. Yeah, my grandmother made homemade Wait, just strudel flour too. water, and did she stretch it on your dining room table? For never, in, never in my lifetime. Oh man, that's a that's a memory I'm actually writing about. It has me. I just, I yeah, I just, I, I have a story about that that from when I was six years old about my grandma making phyllo in our house. It, it ended up becoming a, an apple strudel. You mean is that what kind of what happened? No, but I mean like what what was your what is your memory? I'm sorry. My grandma was very short probably four, four feet, nine, maybe. And, um, stout because we had the big dining room table. She'd arrive, you know, eight in the morning when we were on our way off to school with this little ball of dough in her bag. And she'd plunk it down in the center of the dining room table, which she could barely reach. She was, she'd start reaching and patting it down this disc of just, I, I think it was just flour and water. Yeah, maybe a touch of salt, maybe not. And she'd start pushing on it gently, and she'd walk around the table, reaching and pushing and reaching and pushing. We'd go off to school. We'd come home for lunch because we did uh, in my little town, mm-hmm. Rochester, New York. We <laughs> um, she was at the dining room table, still working away, and the disc of dough was becoming more like a tablecloth of dough. It was, it was thinning out. It was rounding out. And she would gently and with very small movements, put it on top of her knuckles and pull it towards her. Just, and she called it, it was a verb, her favorite verb for this was nudging. nudging. <laughs> that sounds like the perfect <laughs> verb for it. Into Philo. And then we go back to school for the afternoon. And when we'd come home at the end of the day, it covered the whole dining room table. It draped over the sides, and she was very proud of sticking a piece of newspaper under it. And then she would somehow roll it up, take it home, and make make apple strudel out of it, which we, we hated apple strudel when we were kids. Oh. It. Was, kids didn't eat nuts. Um, are we way off the track? Of no, it's just, it's such a perfect, to me, that's like, it was the most incredible thing in the whole world. And we hated apple strudel. No, we didn't you know. eat it. We didn't eat it. But what stuck with me... So much of what I witnessed about cooking when I was little, and I witnessed a lot because my mom loved to cook. My grandma, oh, she did. They, yeah, they cooked together. We had it was they were cooking all the time. What I loved about it before I was sophisticated enough to taste it, <laughs> the devotional the devotion was not lost on me as a little kid. I couldn't quite grasp that my grandma would spend the whole day making this beautiful, perfect dough, quietly, calmly. She didn't have the radio on. She just was humming a little bit and walking around the table for hours, like as, 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 though, as if she were in a trance. This is love. This is pouring. Why, why does she do this? The only word I can think of is it was a devotional act. I was just going to say it has to have been like meditational and devotional. Right, that it's as much a ritual, a positive ritual as any in religion, right? To be able to do that. And then the outcome is this piece of edible love. And I'm all it's for true. edible love. It's true. And when I what I learned later, you know, kind of looping back to the subject of pretend soup, which was my first children's cookbook, the one that, you know, 
<laughs> those <laughs> that pancake recipe. <laughs> There's an, a fascination with process, with the cooking process that I think it comes earlier than the actual association with it being something you, when I prepared for that book, I, I, I cooked in a preschool with little kids for a couple of years. I came in and did cooking sessions and then wrote down the children's remarks, which were hilarious. Just so <laughs> and they, they loved to count things like they made these milkshakes and they were counting the bubbles and it was just, talk about devotional and they didn't necessarily want to eat what they made, but they loved making. They loved the process. They loved the focus and they loved the respect they were given by, you know, by handing them a task. Entrusting mm-hmm. them with it, it meant so much to them. And then they'd finish the thing, they might walk away from it or try to feed yes. it to someone else. They weren't necessarily, <laughs> they didn't link it up with eating, no. it was doing. So, like as kids, we make mud pies too. You know, we're not intending oh. to eat them, but yeah. I would go in my backyard and gather all manner of things that would probably kill you if you ate them, <laughs> like you berries and things, and <laughs> mix them into this wonderful thing. And you're right, it was creation. And well, I was in charge of it. But you could feed them to the invisible critters who lived in the foundation of your house. Could you that not? Is, uh, well, that's who ate it mostly. And they appreciated it. Too, of course they did. They loved it. <laughs> they loved um, So we're here today to do something nice. I have to just give a shout out to this week. I just tweeted something like, I picked the wrong week to stop being angry. To try and stop being angry. I. I I just came off of reading a story about a white privileged kid from upstate New York who raped four teenagers when he was 17. Right. And he's got eight years of probation. No jail time. No jail time. No jail time. Just registered sex offender status. Yeah. And his parents helped groom the girls with marijuana and alcohol. And then. Oh my God. And they, they just, they're, pleaded not guilty we've got kyle rittenhouse and that nonsense sort of hovering in the part of my brain that's going am i going to be angry how angry am i going to be about this kind of waiting it's like waiting for the shoe to fall drop and then i watched part of the ahmed arbery trial today i mean not he's not trial but the people the man who killed them and watching the process of turning Somebody, a white man who shot somebody into, well, he wasn't afraid. Just, and and also he was trained in law enforcement. So he knew how to shoot a jogger. How, how have you been this week? How was your anger level this week? <laughs> how are you? <laughs> you know, I hate to say this publicly, and I try not to, I, I put a fraction of my anxiety on, on Twitter. I, whatever I put there, it's like a million times worse. <laughs> I try to keep it, you know, I've got, I, I, I don't go all the way on Twitter with my, with the, my vision's pretty dark. Um, what I see, I mean, I'm seeing what we all see. And, and yet um, I, I really do work hard on a daily basis to balance out the, the thread that I'm going to live on, the thread of thought, like I see it as like, <laughs> here I go with the metaphors. My kids laugh. My metaphors are so bad. They, they are. They're, they're awful. They're right. Um, like, oh, like, like you have a wire and just, <laughs> wires outside and the different birds are perching on different wires. So I feel like we can choose, we can perch on the wire of following the news 
which, you know, as middle class white people, we have the privilege of just, oh, we can follow the news or not follow the news. It can we can kind of jump to a different wire where on, on this other wire, I'm I'm on a different track. I think it might be called denial. Um, who knows? But it's where I am in my garden and I'm practicing my music or making pie crust. <laughs> Or, <laughs> um, you know, but, but the, the kind of life-affirming parallel universe of creativity and remembering what propelled us this far in life with a, a fairly, you know, significant amount of joy. Um, again, we're privileged, mm-hmm. and I go I go on into that kind of zone a lot to balance out what I perceive in the world. It helps. It really helps, I have to say. We think of denial as something avoidant and as a bad thing, but in fact, it's a survival technique as well. Yeah. We're not going to give in to all this bad crap that's going on out there. We're not going to just throw throw it away, throw ourselves away. Oops, you know, the world's so bad. Why bother? We've got to bother twice as hard. Yeah, I I think that's a really good point. And I think you just explained my father to me after. My father was a immigrant from, I mean, I'm really getting off track here, but the pastry in Austria, fantastic. Um, but <laughs> my, fa- my father was an immigrant from Austria and I'm wearing a Damel's um, conditori uh, apron, but he came here uh, as a, during the Holocaust and he was, he survived the Holocaust as did his mom and his dad and not a whole lot of other people. And never really talked about it he never really did anything you know like he would remind us of it on occasion but I think in order to lead his life he had to have that denial or he would have been rolled up in the fetal position I mean right yeah so denial can be healthy in its way and did you you knew him as having some joy in him too I'm sure loads of it especially when dessert was involved (laughs) truly like the reason I bake cookies is because of him Let's get on to making this pie crust because Thanksgiving. By the time I'm done talking, Thanksgiving is almost here. Um, so one week from today, everyone will be digging into a beautiful pie crust because they listen to this description of how to make yeah, a pie crust. If we do our job well enough today, they'll have the pie crust just by itself with nothing else in it because we're gonna <laughs> we're gonna be so deep. <laughs> we're gonna be so deep in the. Oh, the granularity of the podcast. It shouldn't be grainy. So <laughs> no, 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 no granularity. <laughs> just kind of. So, you know, um, I would love to dispel fear about this. Please. So, um, we're not afraid. You're not afraid. I'm not afraid. Um, okay. So this is what I, I will tell you what I do, what I'm going to do before I do it. Cause it's going to make noise, which is the, I'm going to use the food processor. To yeah. the idea of, let me, I'll give the overview is really simple. You're cutting together, cutting, you know, putting, combining together with a blade of some sort, mm-hmm. um, flour and a good solid fat. In this case, I use butter. Some people use shortening or lard, but for me, butter is just the thing. Besides, my French friend uses it and I do what she does. Exactly. And it makes just a, Studies have shown, like scientific studies, that butter makes it better, flakier, more tender. Did I say flavorful? Crust. Whereas Crisco, even if your grandmother used it, and we can talk about the Jews and Crisco at some point, which is a fascinating story, it doesn't have flavor. It just 
right. a, a, pro- a proc gets you some texture and makes Salt you feel texture. like it's easy. So butter, flour, I use unsalted butter. You don't have to use unsalted butter. The reason I use it is because two things. One is I like to control the salt in mm-hmm. my baking and cooking. To me, the the use of salt is is where the poetry of what you're doing it really is manifest. If you ever give me a recipe that says salt to taste, mm-hmm. I'll give you back the recipe and say, tell me how much salt to put in here. This is <laughs> uh-uh, no way. Uh-uh. Uh-uh. So I, I like to use unsalted butter so I can control the salt. And also because you don't know, unless you're using a brand of butter you know very well, you don't know what the salt might be masking in terms of rancidity or, you know, the, whatever the butter has been, been through. So I, like to, <laughs> so I go with unsalted butter, also, a.k.a. sweet butter, all-purpose flour. And salt. Do you care and if then, it's bleached or unbleached like some people do? I, I haven't used bleached flour forever. I just part of me is just unbleached AP flour is my go-to. And then you I add very cold liquid, mm-hmm. just enough. You you really want the water or liquid in a short crust to be absolutely minimal. It's just there to hold things together. Mm-hmm. You don't want it wet. You want it just fat and flour, but the, a little bit of cold liquid. And I say cold because all the ingredients need to be, I will, the flour doesn't really need to be cold. <laughs> butter, the butter needs to be cold. You notice when you see on the great British baking show, they're like running against the clock with the, when they're making the puff pastry because yeah. butter is being cold and they keep throwing, everybody's running to the, ref- <laughs> I showed you, I was nuts. I love it. But <laughs> the way some people scream at Monday Night Football, I'm like yelling at my toe, no, don't. <laughs> Me too. Let it <laughs> Anyway, um, but the cold, the, the, the chilled temperature is really important to keep things heading in the direction of flaky. And so um, I'll, if we have time, I'll talk physics later because I love physics of cooking. But for now, I just want to say I'm going to put flour, a little mm-hmm. bit of salt and butter that I cut in advance. It's oh, by the way, I think I told you eight ounces. It's four ounces of four, butter. Yeah, it's um, 150 grams of flour, which is a cup and a quarter. I'm measuring. Fry. I'm measuring it as we speak. Uh, and some people want the weight, so there's there are the grams. Every cup of flour has 120 of them. And then we sprinkle in a scant half teaspoon of salt and buzz just a couple pulses to get all the dry ingredients all evenly blended. The butter that she talks about is four ounces of butter, which in America is a stick of butter. And the, if you can hear it, the noise I'm making is slicing the butter up into thin little slices. Um, or as Molly nicely put it in her recipe, slivers. Well, she said slim slices. Oh, there she goes. Slim slices. But I'm thinking slivers. I also sort of wonder why it isn't called slivers. Does anybody know that? Oh, I love that word. I also want to just say that the reason I have you slicing it with a knife instead of breaking it up with your fingers is that our hands, yeah, our hands contribute warmth, which normally is a lovely thing. But in high crust, we don't want that. (laughs) (laughs) For all of you people out there, cold at heart and hand, pie crust is for you. I've been known to actually wash my hands under cold water to cool them down. Oh, I do just the opposite. I love to run my cold hands under hot water to warm them up. Oh my God, we make a complete person. (laughs) We are whole together. Are you ready to put your, are you putting your butter on top now? I'm going to put my butter. So I lay the butter on top of Mm -hmm. the flour. Mm -hmm. 
general lay it without touching it much. That's the whole point. Just kind of get it in there, but distribute it as much as you can. Help your Cuisinart out. Right. Okay, buzzing. We're using a series of pulses instead of just letting it run. And the reason is we don't want to overmix. What are we looking for as far as size is concerned? I think that's where people get all called up in like, is it pea size? Is it pomegranate seed size? Which is an example you've used in your cookbooks, which I love. Mm-hmm. I'm like, yes, that's exactly the size. Uh, is it corn kernel size? Is it um, sand size? What is it supposed to look like? Are you talking about when we put the butter in or after we buzz it together with the flour? After we buzz it together with the flour. After we buzz it together with the flour, we 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 want it to be like like just a cornmeal. So mm-hmm. you don't see the pieces of butter anymore unless you look really closely and you're stoned. So as uniform as possible, what we're doing is we're turning the flour into a buttery meal. That sounds real good, doesn't it? It does. It sounds really good. I like a buttery meal. Here's funny, Marissa. I'm wondering, as we go, I'm wondering, which is the point where people freak out and think, oh, no, this is a scary thing I'm doing. I I think that maybe that point doesn't happen. That maybe it's before you start. There's the barrier of doing it at all. And when you start, it's so friendly and fun. It's friendly and fun. But I do think when we start saying to people things like, you have to make sure your butter is cold and you have to make sure. And these are all very simple things to do. But I think when we say it, sometimes it scares people like, but what if it isn't perfectly cold? What's the right temperature of cold? People really like to know specifics. And I think especially in something like pie crust, that's where we get caught up. And yes, it should be cold. Yes, the ice water should be cold. But if you follow these basic steps, things are going to turn out okay. I also think people get really terrified when it comes to rolling it out. Because it breaks, it cracks, oh, and it oh, sticks. Wow. We will so cure that fear. We're, this, that fear will be gone after people listen to us today. People, this is better than therapy. I mean, really. First of all, it's going to he- heal you of anxiety and you get pie at the end. So really, I don't know what more people want from world. I have, I, I should take a picture of it, and I will, to show people a sort of delicious so I've taken a picture of the delicious meal and I will post it in my sub stack so people can look and see what a real, what mealiness looks like. And so now we have this meal. This has so far been quite simple. What about people who say you need to do it all by hand? Oh, that's, a, that's not true. <laughs> I, was, <laughs> I know I'm dropping names of the, of the grand dames here, but um, I was once at some something or other where I was on a panel with the great Marion Cunningham. Do you remember? Her? I mean, yes, of the joy of cooking fame. Well, she did a version of it. The Fanny Farmer was her yeah. you know, focus. And then she also was just so revered as the kind of, she was the grand dame out here in the Bay Area. And um, and she, she, I will say, so I correct myself, but also say I read her memoir called Stand Facing the Stove. Which great title. Best great title, title ever. <laughs> <laughs> First direction in any recipe. Stand facing the stove. I love it. Because of course, anyway, I'm sorry. She didn't tell us. <laughs> so um, she got wind of, we, I don't know what we were, what the subject was, but she got wind of the fact that I use a food processor to make dough. So I use it for bread dough. I use it 
I use it for pizza dough. Um, I use it for everything. It's a great machine. So good. It's so, good. so she and so she made a point of telling the audience in no uncertain terms and with zero humor, zip humor, which always wins me over. <laughs> yeah, me too. I love that. But far be it for me to to criticize the great lady, but she did say it's not a pie crust unless you use either the hand, you know, pie crust cutter thing. Oh, the thing with the, the like multi bladed yeah cutter. you know the thing with the i'm really being articulate the thing with the things <laughs> i know exactly but i think everybody out there knows what we're talking about when we say you know, the, the thing, thing with, with the, the handle thing. and the, the handle the curved tines underneath or two forks or two knives and god forbid one fork and one knife or one knife and one fork but either two forks two knives or the thing with the curved tines and if you make your pie crust any other way it isn't pie crust but here we are and i am telling you lo all these decades later Use your food processor. It takes only seconds. I mean, we're yapping a lot, but this, in fact, only takes seconds. seconds. Truly seconds. By the time you can get this done, wrap it up, let it rest in the fridge, you know. Okay, but before we like wrap grandma, there is the there is the addition of the cold water. Yes. Because unless, a lot depends on the humidity of your kitchen and a lot depends mm-hmm. on the temperature of your kitchen, but we do need some liquid to kind of bind this thing together and just enough. And we want it cold. So I keep the water in the refrigerator. If I know I'm making pie crust, I put it in there an hour ahead of time. And, and I, if, if you can hear it here, I take a Pyrex measuring cup and I put ice cubes and water in there and sort of dip my tablespoon in there. So I don't have to go running to the fridge. And then you sprinkle the water into the what is now the meal inside your food processor and pulse. But how much, you just said my, my kitchen, it may be humid, it might be dry, and my flour might be damp. And, and how do I know how much to add, okay, here's Molly? Most, here, Marissa, <laughs> this, is, this, is, this is the part where you interact with the dough more, most directly before you roll it out, which is add the water. I, I always start with two or, two or three because it almost never takes less than that. Put, mm-hmm. you know, dribble it in, pulse a few times. Don't wait for it to come together by itself because you might have overmixed it by then. Now I'm scaring people again. Don't, be afraid. Yeah, but don't worry. It'll be fine. Open it up. Be careful of the blade as you reach in and just try to put some of it together with your fingers. And you push it into itself when it sticks to itself. Not, not a wet stick, but kind of just a cohesiveness. When you mm-hmm. feel that cohesiveness because you are one with the dough. When it does that, you've got enough, you've added enough moisture. It will still look crumbly. But what you do is you get it out of the food processor. Again, be careful of the blade. I always have to say that. Um, And push it into itself and transfer it to a clean, dry surface that has been lightly dusted with Mm -hmm. flour. And an ideal surface is, um, an ideal surface is your kitchen counter. Mm -hmm. If it, especially if it's one of the, you know, more modern stone ones. It's a yes. little. And um, continue to push it together. Don't worry, you're handling it now. You don't want to overhandle it, but you won't. You'll be fine. Just push it together until it makes a, a either a ball or a disc, but somewhat of a round, as much of a round as you can. And that's a quick process. That's a really quick really process. Quick. Allow it to be imperfect. It's not going to look beautiful. I mean, it might look beautiful and that would be nice, but no one will ever really see it in this stage. And it's doing what it needs to do, even if it's a little ragged or or Mm -hmm. crumbling. You're going to slowly 
Well, I'm saying slowly and quickly, and it sounds like which one, Mel? <laughs> well, maybe it's like a waltz. <laughs> uh, you want to work as quickly as you can, but you want to be as patient in that quickness as you can. So it's all about self love. <laughs> <laughs> I've even talked to myself for this trip. <laughs> and you start, you, you get your beloved rolling pin. I referred to mine. My mommy gave it to me when I was 13 years old. I still have it. And you start rolling it out with strokes from the center towards from the inside to the edge, from the inside to the edge, aiming to make it a circle, pushing down, pushing out. Um, it's, a, it's a rhythmic thing. If you let it, how be. long should it have waited in the refrigerator though before this? Like you let it rest first. I did the TV cooking thing where you have one made in advance, even while you're making <laughs> And it was in the refrigerator 24 hours. Oh, wow. And but do I have to keep it that long? No, you do not. And I have to admit, I, I have been known to put it directly into the pan without even chilling it again at this point. I trust you with this information. You just don't want it to get too soft while you're working it. I think, you know, that's actually a good little secret to tell people because I think it has to take the fear away from, I, I've melted it with my fingers. I've, um, it's going to crack because I added too much water. There, there are a lot of things that can happen. People worry that they're going to end up with this leathery, people have made leathery pie crust before, excuse me. But I think it, especially when you're using all butter, it's less likely to happen. Somehow liquidize your butter or pour in a half a cup of water. Yeah, I have a few things that'll help people, I hope will help people feel a little bit more at ease about this process. One is if you ever have any worry that it might be getting too warm, just stick mm -hmm. it back in the refrigerator for a little while and give yourself plenty of time to do this. It doesn't necessarily take time, but if you're not rushing it to get somewhere else or do something else, which is how it always should be anyway when you're cooking, but can't always be that way, but with pie crust, give yourself plenty of time. And if it's if you're worried about the temperature, just put it back in the refrigerator. But here's an even better reassurance. This is my favorite reassurance I want to give people. I think it will help the most. Do not worry if your pie crust breaks in any way when you're rolling it out. If suddenly there's a crack, there's a continent that's breaking off from another, right. continent, creating a new <laughs> with a new yes. ocean. <laughs> just right. keep rolling it. You don't even need to patch it back together. It will all be unified in the pan. So you can actually end up putting several broken pieces of pie crust together. You can fit them together in the pan and they will, as they bake and the butter melts a little bit, it will adhere, it will re-adhere. And so it can be in five or 10 pieces or there, you can patch with crumbs. You know, one more note, you're going to top it with um, some gooey pie, pecan pie filling or cream pie or apple pie. No one's turning your pie crust upside down it's not going to even if there's a little steam where something leaks out it, it's, it's going to be okay once it hits the baking temperature in the oven all mm -hmm. of its pieces find each other and they 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 have a reunion in in the <laughs> oven there's nothing to worry about if you're baking it blind which is the kind of baking where you do the crust ahead of the filling say if you're making a cream pie or something that mm -hmm. has own either doesn't need to be cooked or it gets cooked separately on the stovetop. You you need a baked pie crust, so you you put it in the oven with weights. I just use beans and a on a piece of parchment. Then you then you can see you can actually see you can witness the self healing of the dough in the oven. How the cracks just mend themselves. 
They will. I think rustic crust is so inviting too. You don't want a perfect crust. No, you don't. Rustic is like, that's what people pay money for these days. You want that like rustic plum pie or something and it looks better. It looks better than something that came out of like the processing plant. It's like the torn jeans of of pastry. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) It looks so cool. No, don't drink or eat that. My cat, guys, you can't see this. But he insists on climbing on the countertop, which is uncouth and unsavory. And I swear, if you eat at my house, I clean the counter first before I cook. Um, what I wanted to add also, if, if you're blind baking a crust, that's the one time where I worry that like people be like, it's going to shrink too much. And if you, a lot of people like will put a big pie crust in like, this is beautiful. And then they don't refrigerate it first. They put it right in the oven and it's slides down and you're left with this little skinny line of crust is the best way to avoid that putting it in the fridge first do pull out all the stops here's here are the three things you can do one is just prick it all over with a fork i think it's called Mm. docking it just yeah just prick it all over with a fork it's also a really good cathartic (laughs) outlet and then re-refrigerate it get cold again and then get into the corners with the parchment or the foil don't just put it in the bottom of the pan, but let it ride up. Get a generous amount of foil and let it go all the way up the sides and then gently push it into the corners of the circle where, you know, where the, the seam, where the sides begin. Mm-hmm. Get your weights into those corners. So it'll, it'll anchor the sides so they don't slip down and then get it kind of build up the beans on the sides. Then the pastry can't slip down because it, it's trapped up there. There's nowhere That's to go. That's fantastic. Nowhere to go except in your mouth. Oh, um, yeah. <laughs> so rolling it out, patching it together, if it turns into 12 pieces, I think that's like, you know, you can just push them back into pie crust, into the pie pan. I think that is a fantastic reassurance for people. I for me, it so much. It's, so, it's, it's like pure forgiveness. It's okay to have cracks because it'll all be well. And you it'll may- all be well. I also sometimes cook in, um, I like to cook in my glass Pyrex that I bought at like the shop, right? For five bucks, because then I know that my crust is browning, which I think sometimes like people take it out too soon and it's sort of, they're like, oh, it's flaccid on the bottom and nobody wants that. But this way you can see it browning. Yeah, that's great. And and you get that reassurance. I Um, always use Pyrex. Always. Um, you know, here's not a one sponsor. Yeah. <laughs> here's one more thing I, I want to suggest. The yield on this pie crust is kind of unpredictable. It's at least enough for a crust in the pan. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it's enough to roll out again and, you know, make sweet little shapes with a little cookie cutter or something and put little leaves or, you know, stars on top of the pie, which is so cool. Just put it on top of your sliced apples and, you know, it's lovely. But another thing you can do. And my mother used to do this when we were kids and she'd make pie crust. She made it out of a Pillsbury pie crust mix, which was really stupid because all it was was the pie crust <laughs> stick form and you rolled it into a circle form. Oh, when I was a kid, I was so gullible. I just loved, anything that happened in the kitchen was absolutely like drop everything. There's something going on in the kitchen. Um, give us each a little piece of dough when she had extra. And we roll it out ourselves. Probably, probably we overhandled it and we didn't care into our own little circles. And then we make cinnamon sugar, mm. which is another fascinating thing to do because 
you put this sugar in the bowl and you put cinnamon in the bowl and it's two different colors yes. and then mix it till it's only one color. And that is like that. You get a three-year-old doing that. It'll, they'll, they'll spend three hours on it. It's, great, but <laughs> it's awesome. And, and you sprinkle the circle with the cinnamon sugar and then you roll it up in a crescent, which kids can do. And they feel very proud of themselves and then bake that, you know, for 10 minutes and they've made their little cookies. Right. And then you don't have to wait for the pie either. And you probably don't like pie if you're four years old either. I didn't know. I wanted cake or cookies. <laughs> I wanted to eat brown sugar straight out of the box. My daughter used to do that. <laughs> yeah, my daughter did too. I do remember giving my kids when they were much younger dough to play with while I was cooking and just looking over and, and by the end it was like gray. <laughs> I'm like, I don't think we'll cook that, but yummy. Um, well, I could feed so, that to the, to the invisible critters in the foundation of your house. They would love it. Some of the, the critters in the foundation of my house are not so invisible. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> but, but that's only they as an adult that too. it bothers me. <laughs> they need to eat too. The chipmunks need to eat too. I think we've gone a ways to making people less afraid. What, what If you blind bake the crust, do you keep it at the same temperature? Do you start it in the hot oven or do you just go with like a steady 350? I just go steady. With 350, 375. Oh, here's another tip, though. Uh, I don't know if you've talked about this um, before, but uh, it's important for me to let people know this. It took me a long time to know this. Your oven isn't necessarily at the temperature that the dial says it is. Yeah. And this goes for all kinds of stoves, you know, the high end ones, the low end ones, even if it's digital, which they all are now. You know, for serious bakers or somebody who, you know, we all really care about how things come out. I highly recommend getting not one, but two oven thermometers. Why two? Because your oven can be a different temperature and a different, a different level or in a different corner. And you really want to know what you're dealing with because the temperature is, is you know, it's part of the physics of what you're going to end up with. It's part of the physics of what get you the, pro, the end product, the way you want Absolutely. it. Absolutely. And since it is the holiday season, the gift giving season, if you want to give your favorite baker a great couple of gifts, those thermometers are, and I swear by not a paid endorsement, Thermopen. The other thing I love, and I want everyone to have one, um, if you're going to give people these baking gifts for the holidays, give it to them early so they can use them to bake things for you. <laughs> exactly. Pretend all your friends are Jewish and want to go and celebrate Hanukkah for them because that starts like just after Thanksgiving on the 30th this year. So, or also a nice, you can give them a, um, we used to also celebrate St. Nicholas Day in my house where um, on December 6th, where if you leave a shoe out, St. Nicholas, if you'd been good, would bring you um, some chocolate treats if you've been good and maybe a pen or pencil or something but you can give them some nice uh kitchen tools so they can start baking some damn cookies for you i think um, kitchen tools are a great gift i do too um there's so many as long as you don't over gadget them you i've also read that you're a big fan of great knives and for oh me just to like sort of quickly turn this into the direction and before we leave this show we're going to go over the top 10 tips for um great pie crust making but um or i put that on my sub stack um but i think like you um led this charge along with some others but you are the empress of it 
the empress of the eggplant. And um, I think a lot of people are, I could do a whole series of them, the queen of quinoa. Um, anyway, you, I think a lot of people like get stuck when it comes to um, preparing vegetables and would rather just get like the chopped up ones from the grocery store or whatever, or frozen ones, which are all fine. Hey, don't not eat vegetables because of it. But I think if you have good knives, it completely transforms how you can move and with what kind of speed in the kitchen. Absolutely. People really need to get over their knife block. The longer you talk to me, the more obnoxious I'm going to get. You might. Um, a sharp knife is the difference between enjoying cooking and not enjoying cooking. At least that's been my experience. Me too. And yeah, good. I mean, of course, <laughs> right? <laughs> right. And, um, a sharp and conditioned knife. You know that a sharp and conditioned knife is one that you had professionally sharpened, and that you also conditioned by pulling out that steel, you know, that long, mm-hmm. that and you swipe the knife on either side of it, it makes this incredibly beautiful swishing noise. Yeah. You feel like you're some kind of superhero who's brandishing your knife rather than just conditioning it. You ready? Oh, oh my gosh. Ready? That okay, Amer- America, I'm going to be doing this right next to my ear. So if I lop it off, I'm doing it for you, for the sound of a knife against a steel. Oh. And that was just a little pairing knife. It sounded like a bird, actually. It was very sweet. <laughs> a little um, bird. A little bird. It's so important to have a sharp knife because it's you'll go from not wanting to cut anything to wanting, well, it's <laughs> wanting to cut everything inside. And, you know, you just, like one flick of the wrist and you're all, you, you know, you go clear through an apple with a sound effect, a swish clean sound effect. Um, it's so gratifying. Of course, you, you're very careful with it. But in some respects, a sharper knife, You've heard this before. It's safer love with it. a dull knife because with a dull knife, you're fighting it to go through and pushing and pushing and knives can slip and, you know, the rest is, can be bad. Um, but but it's a, it is so, it's, it's a clean, sensual, beautiful, crisp experience to cut the vegetables for your dinner. And you will not want anyone else to cut your vegetables. You're going to want to cut everyone else's vegetables. Bring the vegetables. Let me cut them for you. <laughs> and it's, 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 and it's, you can be precise. You have to you keep, you know, there, there's a discipline to it. There's a, it's like a practice. Right. Where you, you focus, you stay centered. You keep your eyes on what you're doing. You don't drift away either visually or in your thoughts. You, since I've been such an aficionado of, is that, can you be an aficionado of a knife, sharp knife? Sure. You can be a cigar aficionado. Why not a knife aficionado? Since I've really been on this kick, which has not been my whole cooking life, just it's only been the last say, century of it. <laughs> um, it makes me so excited about about cooking. I just I love it so much. It's it's something I look forward to. You know, cutting even even a butternut squash, um, even a butternut squash, which usually I think the best. Yeah, usually you want to like just drop it out of the off the roof of your house and see what happens and just cook it from there. I once did that with a coconut, but I, I, I wouldn't recommend it. The first lesson that I learned in cooking school was a sharp knife is better than a dull knife because a sharp knife gives a clean cut when you cut your finger <laughs> and a dull knife gives a jagged cut that's harder to heal. And that's what they teach you in cooking school. If I'm okay, so I'm playing Santa Claus here and I want to get three terrific, three 
basic one, like the ones I'm going to spend the cash on knives, what three shape sizes should I get them on? My go-to gift for the young people in my life who are graduating college or getting married um, is to get the most beautiful Japanese cleaver I find. And there um, there are some amazing Japanese tool shops Mm. near where I live because a large Japanese population and there's nothing like a Japanese tool shop. It's just like, it's like a little museum. It's incredible. Um, Scissors and gardening tools and all kinds of jealous. The the small cleavers are just almost too beautiful to cut with, but they cut just, and I like a thin, I don't like the big clunker ones, the ones that you would like chase a pig with. Or, I have no idea why I said that. I, because I, you grew up with like Grimm's fairy tales and you can see the housewife with her kerchief on chasing after the pig. Well, thank you for saving me from my <laughs> Really appreciate that. Um, but no, a delicate cleaver can be like, like us, little and strong. <laughs> and um, it, it's just something, it's just the most beautiful tool. And you can find them online too. And so that's my favorite knife. Um, I also like a good paring knife, not very long. I don't use serrated knives very much. I want to slice a tomato or to slice a grapefruit. It kind of drives me crazy when people try to cut vegetables with serrated knives. It's not what they're designed for. They're, they're for bread. Mm-hmm. Good, strong, long-bladed, serrated for bread is fine. But you want a, a straight plate. And so mm-hmm. I like my little, I'm looking over at my knife. What have I got over there? I have, I have several of each and I have a chef's knife, an eight inch chef's knife with a slight curve to it. But, but the cleaver is 90% of what I use. That's fantastic. I mean, the idea of a small cleaver is a great idea. I shall put, I don't have one and I shall put it on my wish list. I don't mean um, small, tiny. I mean, you know, good, no. could be a good, uh, uh, 14, 15 inches long. No, 12 right. foot long, you know, but delicate, not, not heavy. Right. But I think you've conjured the perfect image. When we're looking for to buy one, if you think you can see yourself in a kerchief chasing a hog with it, it's <laughs> not the knife for us. <laughs> but also it should feel good in your hand. And your knife, your perfect knife is the one that feels good in your hand. And it's not the same for everybody. Absolutely. I've tested knives where I've ended up with like blisters from using them. And you really, so that's why you should really. Should ever. Yeah. And you should also feel that phrase is so, so kitsch, but it's true. Feel the steel. Mm-hmm. You you know choke up on the hold and get have most of your hand on the handle, but maybe your thumb and forefinger on the actual blade, and then you can control it. Absolutely. Okay, so maybe you can come back and we can talk about knives. And I, there was some talk that you might come back and we'll talk about chocolate cream pie. Is that true? Um, or make one. Yeah, <laughs> we could talk about it. Why talk when you can make? Which I think it should be our motto. Let me ask you a quick question. Um, I would love to have you back to talk about chocolate cream pie and, and knives. And I would also like to know what kind of desserts you're making for Thanksgiving. What are you making for Thanksgiving? My Thanksgiving tradition is a potluck with some really close friends. My kids live on the other coast. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, it's, it's potluck, with, it's Friendsgiving, but it's, we've been doing it for decades. And my assignment used to be uh, pie. Mm-hmm. But then I got competition because someone got married and there was an in-law who joined the crowd who's 
who insisted on this is like way too much of a story. <laughs> so not interesting. So no, but um, I think I, everyone I think everyone can relate to these stories. That's all I have to say. Okay, everyone I was has the these lady. Excuse me. What's with this new mother-in-law? Move over. <laughs> Better and liked her, which always happens. So okay, you can apply. I used to make a chocolate pecan pie, mm. which I lay claim to having written a recipe for it in 1987. <laughs> <laughs> And then I, I just, I really actually love to make an apple pie. I just love it too. so much. But my, my assignment this year is vegetables. Oh, well, you know. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah don't, no. don't take it the wrong way, but if you were coming to my house, I might, you know, be interested in what kind of side, what kind of side dishes will you bring or main dishes as vegetables? There always seems to be some shelf of new vegetables. I don't know if it's like somebody was experimenting and came up with something new, but then there's the old, vegetables the yeah. heirloom are old and the some kind of i don't know what's going on in those labs but we find things <laughs> we've heard of long way of saying i found these really cute little squashes they've got some really forgettable name which is why i forgot it but they look like little kind of ruddy butternuts they're about half the size of the those big clunkers i know exactly what they're called orange. Sweet. It's got a sugar, some stupid it's name. Honey nut. It's called honey nut. You're right. It's called honey nut, which is why it's like the Cheerios version. I don't know what it is, but it's they're good. The name is dumb, but they're so good. They are so good. If you can find so, a honey nut squash, and I've told other people this, Brendan Sullivan, I'm talking to you. If you can find them, they they're transformative, especially if you were a little on the fence about squash, which maybe some of us are, because they could be a little watery and bland. Not this guy. I put it into an, a, a curry with chickpeas. Oh, yeah. It was phenomenal. They, they cook much more quickly also than butternut. And they're softer, I mean, in terms of cutting them because they're smaller. So I'm probably going to do some kind of a roast of that. And I'll roast Brussels sprouts. And I'll make, I like to make a mustard sauce for the Brussels sprouts. But I like pomegranates with squash. I like pomegranates oh, wow. with squash a lot. That's and nice. I have this nice. thing. But I love to mine pomegranates. <laughs> I'm a miner. <laughs> I put the pomegranate in a bowl of water, deep bowl of water. Yeah. Because, yeah, if you're doing it underwater, what happens is the seeds, as you pull it apart, the seeds sink to the bottom of the bowl of water and the pith and all the parts you don't want rise to the top. So you just skim them off the top and you end up with a bowl full of pomegranate seeds at the bottom of the water and you end up with your kitchen not looking like a crime scene. If anything, that is a tip that has made me less scared of pomegranate. I'm afraid we have to call this to an end, but oh. there's so much to talk about. Yeah. Like, I want to know, can we just give us a hint about the mustard sauce with those Brussels sprouts? You know, I've been using cream a lot lately. Cream, like no. as in heavy cream. No shame, no shame. My early cookbooks had a lot of that kind of stuff in it. And then um, I kind of did it uh, in about phase, went way over in the other direction. And it got so depressing. Everyone wanted to <laughs> I was trying to make low fat latkes and like, I know, like gently sauteing them in a, in a slick of oil instead of like, you know, blasting them with like, you know, deep fried two inches of, you know, dangerously hot oil, which is how it should be done. I got over that whole thing. So now I'm back to um, fat. <laughs> I like to make 
this kind of emulsion of garlic in olive oil and I whisk it and then I whisk some heavy cream in. Oh, and it thickens. And then I add some fresh lemon juice and it doesn't curdle because I keep, the olive oil is warmed and I'm whisking, whisking, garlic, olive oil. I'm, I'm whisking, I'm showing you the whisking motion. It's like, um, drizzle in the cream, dribble in a few, I don't know, squirts of from a fresh lemon and then a little bit of mustard, any kind, salt, pepper. And that's so good. It's so it's, good. It's so good. That's the whole recipe. It sounds phenomenal. And you could take your pie crusts, sprinkle some cheese on top, bake it off, just make it like a giant cracker and eat it with that sauce. <laughs> that was spontaneous of you. I'm so impressed. <laughs> you can just Sounds do good. it. <laughs> I would do it. Um, I uh, thank you so much for coming on and for holding the hand, for holding the hand of a panicked nation in the run up <laughs> to Thanksgiving. <laughs> No more pie crust fear. No, let's just all say it together. It's going to be fine. There are going to be delicious things on top of the pie crust. Have a good time. Enjoy yourself making pie crust. What is that? What would you say? I would say, amen. I agree with everything both of us just said. (laughs) Pie crust is about forgiveness. It is. You're forgiving yourself and the pie crust for being imperfect. And I don't know anyone who isn't relieved when anything ever turns out imperfect. Everyone's like so so thank God it's, it's not just me. Nobody wants perfection. We just everyone thinks everyone else does. But we're so relieved when something's not perfect. So keep that in, in mind. That is the best message for Thanksgiving. Thank you so much. Um let's all be more forgiving of oh. the people who deserve forgiveness. I'm not mentoring Paul Gosar. Okay, I just did. All right. Um that was a bad message. I'm sorry to end it with that. Okay. We're I forgive all you, Marissa. You're so thank forgiving. You're so wonderful. Thank <laughs> you so much. Um, thank you so much. You are amazing. And I'm so glad you've been here. Happy, happy Thanksgiving. And to you too. Thank you so much for tuning in. Molly and I both hope you embrace making pie crust from scratch. You can do it. No fear. And it's worth it. Tweet me any questions you have. And remember, the recipe can be found on my newsletter, marissarothkopf.substack.com. You can also find a link to it on Twitter. Thank you for listening. Share pie this week. Share joy. And if you don't mind, please share this podcast in my newsletter. Happy Thanksgiving. Talk to you soon.